Welcome back, everybody, to the vaccine conversation. I'm so like loud with that. Welcome. It's like we were just here. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, there was a in- interesting part one about um, how to talk with a medical professional about um, the vaccine conversation and and your place in this movement as somebody who is, uh, you know, uh, supports medical freedom. And, and now this is part 14. So if you missed <laughs> parts two through 13, check our other episodes. We're on part 14 of yes, how to talk exactly. to a medical professional. It felt like that Just when we were recording kidding. it. Part no. two. So yeah, welcome so, back. Yeah. Welcome yeah. Welcome back. back. Yeah. So and what is, uh, what is the next thing that, that you find interesting to, uh, to like, you know, bring up with a medical professional? And I also don't think if you are someone who has chosen not to vaccinate your kids, I don't know if the point of your conversation would be to prove why you didn't want to vaccinate at all or why you don't believe in vaccines. I personally feel if it were me and I was in a situation where I had not vaccinated my kids at all because I had done this research ahead of time. I don't think that's the conversation I'd be having with the medical professional. I think the conversation I'd be having with them is why there is a movement of educated parents who yes. have concerns over yeah. the current vaccine schedule, right. concerns over the amount of doses, how soon they're given, and vaccine injury, genetic susceptibility, and being mandating and losing your rights to an education when obviously some kids are going to be hurt. I think it's it makes a lot more sense to have um, a conversation about why there's concern yeah, Not a conversation yeah. about that's why I didn't vaccinate right. my or kids. Or who's right and who's wrong. I right. think it's going to be a lot harder for right. somebody to really listen to you and understand even the possibility of not vaccinating your kid at all. Like, I almost think that that's a little yeah. too far yeah. because when I first had my, you know, serenity, when I first, I had never met a single person who didn't vaccinate right. that I knew of. Right. I didn't know there's this community. I didn't know it was even possible to not vaccinate. I thought you could do less. But you don't not do any. Right. And that's how and that was just 2013. Right. So it's not that long ago. I was literally in a completely different mindset. Yeah. My guess and, and what I know to be true is medical professional professionals are also in that mindset. There it is not yes. even a possibility to not vaccinate your kid to right. them. To them. There is a way to opt out of certain things, but to them, not vaccinating is almost so far out of their consciousness that I don't think you're going to have an impactful and an effective conversation. I think all of us are messengers. All of us. Mm -hmm. We're all Mm -hmm. advocates. We're advocates for increased transparency. We're advocates for increased safety. We're advocates for inherent and ethical rights, you know, as it relates to the bodies and and, um, against mandates. and, And I think painting the picture of knowing all these things are there, that we've already talked about, all these things are there. So how could it be ethical to mandate and kick these children out of school? You don't even have to talk about what you do with your own children. That's not so much the pro, you know, the point of the conversation. Right, right. I mean, I only talk about my story because of what happened to Serenity to understand it's personal and to understand that's kind of what triggered me into this, you know, six year, seven year long research experiment now that I've been a part of, um, I was pushed into that field 
But, and I've said this to other people, if that's not something that happened to your kid, I don't really know that when you're talking to somebody who's really strongly on the other side, if it's even necessary as part of the conversation, the conversation is that there are reasons to question the program. Right. right. Here, here's why. Right. And then I would follow up as we're talking the things we've talked about so far. I would also follow up with another question asking, do you think there are any doses of any vaccine on the CDC schedule that you feel are optional? Yeah, that's key. Do you feel yeah. all 69 doses are absolutely essential for public health and essential for the health of a child to make it through childhood without severe complication? Because right. I would believe most people would say no. Right. And I think that if they said, well, yeah, I think most of them, okay, and, and be prepared. Do you think hepatitis B is necessary in childhood? Do you think all three doses are necessary? What if right. somebody had one dose or two doses? Do you think they are now at a risk of not making it to 18 years old because they did not have that extra dose? Right, right. Yeah, so then you need to kind of expand on that as to maybe why you as a parent might have chosen to opt out of hepatitis B mm -hmm. vaccine for your baby. Right. And you explain, yeah, I'm not happy positive. My spouse is not happy positive. I know how happy is transmitted. So I'm going to consider getting my child, you know, the happy vaccine when uh, he's a teenager. And that alone would get that doctor to, to think and, and, and see you again as an intelligent person because you're making a very rational decision. Totally. And, and you might say, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to give my kid the chickenpox vaccine. Right. You know, you know, you caught chicken box. You look, you're, you look like you're in your forties. You had chicken box. I had chicken box. Um, yeah. I mean, very rarely someone will have it really, really severe. And, and, you know, there's very rare fatalities from it, but, but gosh, we all had this immunity and we have enjoy this natural lifetime immunity. Um, I almost kind of feel like I almost kind of wish my kid would catch chicken box so, so he can have the same immunity that I have. What do you think about that, you know, Dr. Or Smith? Or rotavirus. Do yeah. you think that all babies really need to have right. all three doses of that to survive right. into a healthy childhood? Because right. that's so, the goal, right? Healthy right. kids. Right. And so it, it shows them you're thinking rationally. And then they're going to say, well, yeah, well, what about measles? What about polio? So they're going to come back and, yeah, you, I think you can acknowledge well, yes, yeah, some vaccines are more important than other vaccines. And that's where you talk about cost-benefit right. analysis, right. which is what right. every person but, should be doing with yeah, their doctor. Yeah, but you say, see, I'm thinking through this as, as a consumer of healthcare. And, and where I think you can, you can lead to on this is, and, and it's vaccines like hepatitis B and the fact that some governments have actually mandated that now. It's policies like that that make me uncomfortable mm -hmm. As a consumer of this healthcare, it makes me uncomfortable with number one, trusting uh, any doctor that would tell me, well, I have to get them all no matter what. Um, th that doctor is actually telling me hepatitis B vaccine is important for my child. That makes me lose trust there. And that makes me lose trust in the, the doctors, you know, at the CDC that are making those decisions in the first place. They deemed hepatitis B vaccine is so critically important for my child. And the, the chicken box vaccine is just as important as, as measles vaccine and polio vaccine that they're mandating them. That makes me incredibly uncomfortable that they're like putting all vaccines kind of in the same package as equally important and therefore all worthy of mandating. And because me as an intelligent, rational person, I'm thinking a little bit differently. It then makes me 
not want to makes me wonder if if any of their other policies don't make sense. And and you know, Doctor Smith, I've lost trust in your profession because you guys are telling me I have to get Hep B. Um, you know, uh, just a very irrational vaccine for a little baby. So you know. Isn't that reasonable? Wouldn't you agree that that's kind of a reasonable way? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Measles vaccine is more important. Sure. Polio vaccine is more important. Yeah. And whooping cough vaccine is important because, again, you're not you're not trying to win every side of the argument. You want them to see that you're logically, rationally thinking through this. And uh, and then I think he would come away from this realizing, again, you are a smart person. You are thinking through this. And gosh, yeah, that, that you know, mandated hep B vaccine kind of doesn't make sense. And then you've kind of put a little chip away in, in, well, in his that's, trust that's in, it, in right? this that's thing as well. Yeah. the point. Yeah. And then if you're able to agree that, yeah, maybe not all 69 doses are necessary for optimum health for every mm-hmm. single child in the nation, then I would say, do you know that there are some states now that are actually mandating for school entry the full ACIP schedule? So you just acknowledged to me that you agree some of those doses aren't necessary. Mm-hmm. But now states are going to take that right away from you and your doctor to decide what's best for your child. And then you are going to lose your right to an education because you skipped even just one dose of those that you agreed aren't necessary. Right. And then they're like, hold up. That doesn't make sense. Well, right. They might say, well, I think that's going a little too far. Right. right. And yes, I agree with you. It is going too far. That's why I don't like mandates. But this is what's happening. And this is not just Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. measles. It's not just about that. Now we're talking about doses that are optional and unnecessary of everything. And then, you know, speaking of pertussis, you said whooping cough. If you wanted to get technical and you felt really comfortable, mm-hmm. and I feel very comfortable on this topic where I would go into the pertussis vaccine, right, right. and I'd say, well, are you yeah. really aware? I mean, I'm sure you're aware of right. the, and, and throwing things like a Kaiser <laughs> like, study. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I, I knew that. Well, like, like the Kaiser study <laughs> yeah. and what they found with 12-year-olds and that sixth dose and how many it works for and how quickly it wanes. Having that kind of information, 80% possibility of success rate for only one year of time. Having that kind of data, being able to say off the top of your head, well, we know 90% plus, some, some years 95%, just in California, of kids that have pertussis are already vaccinated and have had several doses, if not the full, the full um, series. And we know that the vaccine has a waning immunity problem. We understand it's acellular now, and so that's affecting its ability to right. last. And it doesn't give you the full immunity anyway. You it don't just get the, reduces right. your symptoms. It doesn't stop the transmission. Right. And then we know as you're getting it at a 12-year-old, you're waning in even a year's time. So when you look at the pertussis vaccine, the idea of mandating that for school entry when it's ineffective doesn't really seem ethical to me, especially considering it's the second highest vaccine reported for side effects, according to VAERS. I mean, some of these simple points are enough to say, do you see what I mean? Do you kind of see where I have a few concerns? That's all you're trying to say is, but there are some holes in this theory, but there are some holes here, but there are some holes here. And as an intelligent parent, as somebody who uses reason and logic and rationale, I'm looking at this and it's not adding up to me to make an obvious black or white decision of, yes, sign me up for the full thing. Let's do this. There are some things because I've weighed the cost and the benefits, because I've weighed the risks, because I've gone and researched this, I'm actually a lot more educated on this than the average person who's complying 100%. And so these are some of the concerns I have. And it becomes like a that's all. I just, I just want right. to, you know, share with you some of the concerns I have. This is why I've come to the place where I have. Mm-hmm. And then I would also mention, and for those who've had injury in their, in their families, um, 
I would mention that you've had medical doctors advise you against further doses. Mm -hmm. I would mention it because it's saying your peers, your colleagues have warned me that further doses for my child could be very dangerous. I understand that there are different doctors with different opinions, and that's why people seek second opinions and third opinions and every other type of medicine. So if you are to trust the fact that your peers and colleagues that are also graduates with medical degrees, um, uh, if you are to trust them that they have looked at my family history, they've looked Mm -hmm. at her her medical history, and they understand it's not safe for her, you as another medical professional should also value that diagnosis. Because whether or not you agree with what people are saying, there are other medical professionals that also agree this is not safe. This is not safe to continue. We have to take these kinds of things into account as if I didn't just make this decision up in my head. I've actually gone and seen people. They've examined my daughter. They've tested her. They've documented Mm -hmm. her history and they've come to the conclusion. This doesn't seem like a good idea. I've done Mm -hmm. my due diligence. Again, I'm an educated, intelligent parent who's looked at everything. I've, I've taken the steps. In fact, I already did what was asked of us, which was to vaccinate in the first place. I did what was asked of me. I followed the protocol for the greater good. Mm-hmm. I did what I was asked. This is what happened. It was unfortunate. After this happened, I did my research and I also did my due diligence. I met with professionals. We discussed this. This is the conclusion we came to. So here we are as a unique circumstance now that is going to be blanketly affected with laws that they're passing because they don't write those laws for the people on the outliers. You know, for the outliers, they write those laws for a just average general greater good. Mm -hmm. And people like me are thrown under the bus. Is that something you're okay with? Do you think that that's fair? If this had happened to you, what would you be thinking? You know, understanding where we are at this state with these types of mandates, you know, you have to understand there are circumstances like this where this is not fair, Mm -hmm. what's happening to people. Mm -hmm. And if you can get them to understand this is not fair. If you can help them to see why this is wrong and why you were kind of the unintended consequence of a bill like this, then you're again, opening their consciousness to why we exist as a movement. Mm -hmm. You're opening their consciousness to maybe these laws aren't as serving of the public as we thought they were. And you're opening their eyes to the fact that there are unique medical circumstances that need to be considered. Maybe I was only thinking of anaphylactic shock because I kept thinking of one in a million. Maybe I was forgetting to include some of this other stuff. Now that you paint this entire picture for me, I can sort of see where you came to this point. And again, they leave that conversation going, look at all these good points. This person's obviously well-researched. And, and you don't even have to go into depth on each of these things, All right. even just a sentence or two that shows that there's a little more to the story and, yeah. you know, vaccine court. You just mention a couple yeah. things. You don't have to go into serious depth there. Um, talking about um, ingredients like aluminum, just a couple of sentences talking about your own story. I mean, if you just plant those little seeds, little bits mm-hmm. like that, and we're talking to a medical professional, right. you wouldn't even have to go into this kind of depth with an average person because an right. average person you're talking to, you keep it a lot more simple. But even for somebody who has got that wall up, mm-hmm. you can at least get them to agree with you right. on these types of points. And right. that's the best you could hope for right. in a single conversation. Yeah, well, one thing that's gonna you're gonna encounter as one of those walls uh, that you have to sort of try to get over is um, 
you're probably going to have a doctor next to you who in their 20, 30 years of practice will probably believe they've never seen a single severe reaction. And you have to realize that that's what you're up against. Mm-hmm. And you will literally, you know, have a pediatrician that believes that. And and the way the way I, I could see approaching that pediatrician or that doctor in a way that they might understand is you want to ask them if – like, how would they know if one of their patients has had a very severe reaction? And they would say, well, they would call up and they would rush into the office and I'd see them, you know, having a seizure. I'd see them, you know, getting really sick or they'd go to the ER and I'd, you know, see them later. And I'd, and I'd say, but um, you, must, you must acknowledge that your office staff must frequently get calls from parents, you know, the, the day, you mm-hmm. know, they've been vaccinated, that their child has a high fever and you must get those calls and they'll be like, Oh yeah, sure. We get those calls all the time. And, and those fevers are probably mostly harmless. And they might even say the fever is good. Well, you, you, I think you want to point out um, one of the most, two of the most common warnings that are on the vaccine information sheets. And, and maybe you can pull that up with this doctor and just say, me as a parent, I've read all the vaccine information sheets, um, vaccine in- information statements from the CDC, because like that's what the CDC says to give parents when, when they're vaccinating so that they're aware of all the benefits of the vaccines and they're aware of what side effects to look out for. Well, on those actual vaccine information sheets, it lists, um, you know, high fever, of course, but it lists, you know, uh, inconsolable screaming, you know, for many hours. Um, you've probably gotten calls, you know, at the office, your nurses probably get calls all the time that their kids are kind of screaming and screaming after vaccines. Every doctor is going to say yes. Oh, of course. Yeah, we get those calls all the time, too. So then you want to say, well, I've done my research and the CDC VIS forms actually say that this, you know, inconsolable nonstop screaming for three or more hours is a sign of, of, a, of a potentially serious reaction and that we need to take that seriously and report it to the doctor. Um, and so all these calls you're getting, that actual reaction isn't listed as a mild reaction to the CDC. It's listed as one of those warnings. Um, and I've done further research and found that, that those symptoms could actually mean encephalitis. Your doctor, doesn't encephalitis mean inflammation of the brain? And so there's this nonstop inconsolable screaming that apparently is is considerably, you know, possibly serious. And so you must have gotten a number of those calls. And the doctor, I think, is going to acknowledge that. Um, and you could say um, our movement, one of the reasons we're, we believe what we believe is many of us in this movement feel that that inconsolable screaming as listed as a symptom of encephalitis is often overlooked. We feel like we are not heard. You doctors never know it's even happening because we're not coming back in to see you. Your nurses take the call, say, give Tylenol, your baby will be fine. Everyone's kind of blowing it off as a normal reaction. If it's a normal reaction, why is it listed by the CDC as something of a possible concern and listed and listed as a reason why you should ask your doctor if you should get that vaccine again the next time? And and that concerns me as a consumer. And so I kind of feel um, that this is often blown off. And then the other vaccine, you know, CDC vaccine VIS side effect that is even more blown off is 
there's two warnings on the MMR and the chickenpox VIS forms, and it used to be on the DTP VIS form. It said, if a child ex- exhibits any unusual behavior or any behavior changes after vaccine, that's a sign of a possible serious reaction, and you should let your doctor know. Um, well, that happened to my child. That happened to my neighbor's child. You must have also gotten reports of that in your office. I, I imagine you must have because it's right there in the CDC warning. Do you think your nurses are getting that call? And, and the doctor is probably going to realize in hindsight that parents have told him that and they totally kind of ignored it. And so I think, again, you show that you are you're not just listening to, you know, some doctor online. You're not just reading Google. You are reading the CDC warning sheets Right. And you're taking it to heart and you're trying to follow the exact wording in those warning sheets and you don't feel heard. You don't feel guided as a consumer of, of, of health care. And that, again, bothers you. And that, again, is, is why you, you might not be prone to just following a doctor who says, you know, you absolutely have to get the whole schedule or following people to say you have to get all this no matter what, because there's all these warnings. Your kid had one of those warnings. And your doctor, you know, uh, explain, I mean, your doctor blew you off. So you had to go to another doctor, to get a second opinion. And that doctor, you didn't even know is on the VIS warning sheet. That mm-hmm. doctor said, oh my gosh, your child had, you know, serious, unusual behaviors after this vaccine. Well, that's one of the warnings against this vaccine. So now I agree with you. Maybe you shouldn't do the the second dose of the vaccine. And again, it just, it, I think it, it it portrays you in a way that I think that doctor is going to hear, but you got to get over that hurdle of that doctor themselves feeling like, well, if I spent the last 30 years not seeing one serious side effect, how can any of what you're saying be possibly true? I would have seen something. Mm-hmm. So you got to show them where they wouldn't have seen it, but it is happening in their patients. You know, the CDC says one in 3,000 kids are going to have a seizure after MMR vaccine, and it's going to be even more after MMR and chickenpox vaccine. You've probably had 20,000 patients in your life. You must have had three or four kids, you know, go to an ER, you know, the few days after one of these vaccines. And the doctor might say, well, yes, you know, I probably have had a, a couple of those kids. Well, if it's listed as a side effect to MMR, that might be related. So that's another, you know, situation where the CDC is giving out all these warnings. Maybe you've seen one or, or two. And and the fact that you, that it's not kind of in your mind uh, sort of reinforces my weir, my fear as, as a patient mm-hmm. that I kind of have to take some of this in my own hands, right. do my own research, because sometimes my doctor isn't always aware and looking out for all these things. And that's just what all of us are doing. That's all we are doing in this movement is 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 making ourselves be like the, the ones in charge of our child's health care. Because we feel like the system is is failing us when we fall through the cracks a little bit and when we are that that rare victim of, of something that the CDC warns about. And I would probably even ask the, again, ideological question of do you think parents are really getting true informed consent? Mm-hmm. Do you think yeah. that's really happening? And speaking of those VIS forms, you know they're given at the time of the appointment. This is not something that's taken home for you to discuss with your spouse and do right. your research on. You're not given the entire package. They're, they're given to you almost even after your kid so, just right. had their shots. Is that 
really inform right. consent? And do you think that's sufficient? Do you think parents deserve to know more, or is that acceptable that they're getting a smaller version of the truth and they're getting they're getting that truth yeah. literally simultaneously to the actual medical intervention? Yeah. Yeah. Does and that seem like that's okay? Yeah. And what do you do, doctors? Right. You know, when do you give your patients the VIS forms? You know, compared to when they're actually getting and the is vaccines? family medical history discussed with you prior right. to vaccines and um, do you discuss vaccine reactions from the last series before you give the next series? Like, are you actually going into a detail? Did mm-hmm. anything happen last time? Right. Are you asking about seizures? Are you asking about the inconsolable crying? Parents aren't going to know to look for those things or that those that's what they yeah. were. You don't know that until a doctor's telling you. You're looking for that doctor to guide you. Yeah. But it, I would... Yeah, and, and the CDC tells you in these forms right. to make sure you ask the parents at their next visit... Um, right. If they had a reaction, do you, you know, do you ask them, Dr. Smith? And right. most of us in this movement have found our doctors are not asking us. So again, we're taking it upon ourselves. And I would even say, did you ever even learn about vaccine reactions? When you were in school, did you actually learn about how to diagnose and mm-hmm. how to treat and how to, you know, witness vaccine reactions? Were you mm-hmm. really taught about all the different types of adverse events that can happen following mm-hmm. vaccination? Were you only taught that they're rare and it's one in a million? Or were you actually taught what they look like, what they could be? Yeah. Isn't it yeah. your job as a medical professional to be on the lookout for anything like this that could go wrong? Because again, we're putting our trust in you to, you know, I would have never known like, I always say I, for my daughter's first appointment for vaccines, the only thing he told me was fevers. Fever was the only side effect. So if that's all I'm, I'm told to look out for, then that's the only thing I'm going to look out for. And unfortunately you could miss a whole lot of other dangerous signs because your doctor's not really informing you and giving you true informed consent for a medical intervention. And again, you're having this conversation with somebody There's no way they're going to walk away from that going, she's crazy. She's a lunatic. She's a conspiracy theorist. You can't have all of that rational, logical discussion about medicine, the practice of medicine, individualized medicine, and about protecting your child and about genetic susceptibility and ingredients. You can't have all of that and somebody walk away being like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. (laughs) You know, and and again, if they're coming out of that thinking – well, maybe there are more parents like her. Maybe yeah. there are a lot of people in this movement that are, and, and I kind of get that. I understand them a little more than, mm-hmm. you know, who I think yeah. makes up the anti-vaxxer movement. Right, right. Um, right. And you definitely want to touch a little bit on the conflict of interest problem with doctors, because I think that kind of does speak to them. And you have to help them realize that vaccines can be part of that problem. And, and really the, the best example of the conflict of interest, and this will, this will interest any doctor, is the spider group that just came out of CDC a few years ago. Uh, 12, and you can just kind of have this as a, as a talking point in the, you know, the top of your head, is over 12 senior scientists at the CDC, senior scientists, they call themselves scientists preserving integrity, diligence, and ethics in research. So spelled out spider, and so these 12 doctors decided to call themselves, you know, you know, spider, just to kind of make it interesting. And they wrote a letter of complaint, you know, to the director of health and human services in our government. And this letter is, is a long letter, but but in the letter they they summarize and they said, quote, the CDC is compromised 
by government and corporate interests Mm -hmm. and has lost its mission to objectively safeguard the health of our country. And when you saw that, and everyone in our movement saw that, and that was gravely concerning to us, that not just one scientist of the CDC, because there's that other CDC whistleblower that you've also probably heard of. These are 12 senior scientists that are saying that corporate interests, basically industry, the pharmaceutical industry, is – you know, donating so much money to our government and our government is overseeing the the CDC. They're now influencing our work at the CDC to such an extent mm-hmm. that we have lost our our ability to objectively safeguard the health of our the health of our country, to make objective scientific decisions that are that are outside the influence of of the pharmaceutical industry. That's what the CDC is now saying. So in us as a movement, we know the CDC oversees vaccine policy and vaccine safety research. We know they've always been overseeing it. So when we see their own group come out and say that, that they've lost the objectivity, that concerns us. As a doctor, I know you follow the CDC policies all the time. You want to have total faith in the CDC. Um, did you know about the spider group? Had you heard about that? Uh, it's interesting that because I, you know we thought it was big news. It's interesting that you would not have heard about that. But if that's true, and you might not, you know, take my word for it here on an airplane, but go go home and then Google search CDC spider, you know, conflicts of interest, and you'll see their actual letter. Read it for yourself. So when I see you know that kind of information come out, that's going to concern me. That what if some of that influence and that loss of loss of objectivity. What if that spilled over into their vaccine policy making decisions? And like like maybe that was part of why they mandated hepatitis B vaccine. Who knows? Um, you know, that's maybe partly why our, our vaccine schedule has has you know uh, escalated so so significantly in the last you know couple of decades. And now that no one even has liability anymore, right. they're liability free. And then they're being mandated by a government that, you know, in an industry that's getting tons of money from its own pharmaceutical companies for their liability-free products. Can you understand at least a little bit why us in this movement are uncomfortable with this, given that whole scenario, that this isn't just, you know, some 100% objective medical policies that – that you know, people who have no financial interest in this whatsoever, and people that are free of all government and farmer influences, are making these decisions. That, that that's not how the situation is, and the CDC now admits that to itself and it has admitted that publicly. So, don't you understand now why we're a little bit hesitant and why we're trying to do our own research and why I'm reading all these medical journals trying to get to the bottom of this? And and I think to me that would speak. Uh, volumes to a doctor if, if you can demonstrate that 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 cdc spider group came out with this because i think that was that was a uh, very telling and and hopefully and if that doesn't speak to them and open their minds a little bit then maybe nothing will but 
I mean, I would probably, I think for me, that would probably be one of the last things I would mention if I mention it, just because they tend to think we're this conspiracy fringe, you know, talking about corruption and all that kind of stuff makes people think, oh, you don't trust the government. And that's why you don't like even all the other stuff I think was, is very rational and logical. But if, if you do get into a deeper conversation, you're able to print out that letter that shows this is verified. Pull it up on your phone. Or or pull it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, without, again, without doing the whole look at this and read this, but if there was something else, if you, if you wanted to just say, you know, I was really interested in reading that letter from the CDC scientists that came out talking about how they feel industry has now permeated the wall of of their regulatory abilities yeah. uh, to keep us safe. That's a concern for me too. And keep it simple. I can forward you that letter if, if you're interested, mm-hmm. you know, and make it simple because I think the last thing we would want for us is to qu- kind of come across like, you know, again, we're it, don't trust the government. There's some you, secret right. stuff going on behind you're, the yeah. scenes. It can come across that way. Unless, yeah. you, unless right. you really trust the people right. and you've kind of gotten all the other right. stuff out in the open. Get the other stuff out in the open. Find the common ground. Let them understand you're reasonable, you're intelligent. And then if you are going to mention something like that, mention it in a way that is very matter of fact. Mm-hmm. It's not like an, oh my God, there's something you know, going on. Uh, right. You know, like, because then they're yeah. going to be like, oh, here we go. <laughs> you know? You know, you're so right, though. How you present. It mm-hmm. really, really matters. I think. Right. I think yeah. most of these facts, I te- I tend to see the best response when you're very casual about it. Well, mm-hmm. and you know, like you know that how pharmaceutical companies don't have liability. I mean, that's kind of a difficult thing. You know, you make it very matter of fact, yeah. not like, did you know, vaccine <laughs> makers have no liability? Yeah. You know, yeah. once you become okay. there, it becomes it feels emotional, it feels charged. Yeah. But if it's like. Well, I don't know. I mean, the schedule's increased so much since they took away liability in 1986. Something seems a little off right. there to me. Right. Like, it becomes yeah. very just matter of fact. And, oh, by the way. <laughs> like, I, I think the, the whole key is if you could just bring Melissa with you <laughs> everywhere you go. Put on me in every your pocket. Airplane. Just put me yeah. in your pocket. Yeah. I'm Melissa, a carry-on. <laughs> Melissa in your pocket. Someone make that app. Yeah. Make the Melissa in your pocket <laughs> That's funny. But, no, I, I appreciate you pointing that out because, to me, like, the spiders thing from the CDC is so – so key, but yeah, it has to be presented in a if way that's not you, conspiracy. If you're a medical right. doctor saying it to somebody, it's not going to be as bad as if it comes from right, a right. parent yeah. who's like, and, you yeah, know, because yeah, then they're going to be like, yeah. oh, you're probably a yeah. flat earther and this and that yeah. too. Like you probably don't believe yeah. X, Y, and Z. Yeah. I, I think the corruption is a real thing that it's verifiable yeah. and it's fact-based. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the way that you say yeah. it. Um, yeah. That makes it believable yeah. or not. It makes yeah. it kind of like, and there's kind of this element, yeah. you know. Yeah. I wanted to um, add something just to your aluminum discussion um, that you sort of like kept talking. So I couldn't like get oh, in there stop. and then throw it in there. Um, um, but the, the whole key with aluminum to me is the idea of new research. Mm-hmm. Because that what we've discovered over the last couple of years is is huge. And um, I think no one can deny you know, the, the body of research that's coming out showing um, mm-hmm. how uh, aluminum is related to Alzheimer's. And Alzheimer's and dementia is a huge problem. Sure. Every doctor is aware sure. of it. And so you can come right out and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're aware or you, you've probably read recently how they're looking at aluminum and its relationship to Alzheimer's and dementia. And if, if they're not aware, you can just, you know, tell them really, really quick that, you know, what they found out. And, and you really want to add that to your discussion about aluminum in vaccines because it's, you got to, if you go through the new research and say, we now know aluminum is a problem. Mm-hmm. And then now we, we've, we've suddenly realized that there is a, 
not a small amount of aluminum in vaccines. Mm-hmm. So there's aluminum in, in half our vaccine schedule. Or, you know, and we've actually done research. They, they've published research showing that um, everyone is now dealing with this, this overload of aluminum in antacids, foods, water, mm-hmm. medications, and vaccines. Now we're realizing too much aluminum is a problem for our elderly population. So now we're kind of stuck, you know, in this in this this problem. You know, everyone views vaccines as incredibly important, yet our, our current industry doesn't really have any way around using the aluminum in vaccines. But me as a consumer, now that we know aluminum is dangerous, I'm a little concerned about giving that much aluminum to to my kids. And like, there's aluminum in the hepatitis B vaccine, so maybe that that would be one I might opt out of. You know, not only that they don't not need the vaccine, but that adds you know one more you know aluminum uh, burden to them. And you don't want to get too deep into it, but right. you want to start with a new research idea, not just with hey, you know, everyone knows aluminum is dangerous, and there's a bunch of aluminum vaccines because a doctor is going to think, well, I didn't know there was aluminum, but even if there is, that doesn't matter because of course it's got to be safe. You have to throw in the new research because um, that'll get their mind thinking. That um, yeah, well, if there's new research now, we maybe do need to take a look. Yeah, at Yeah, maybe that. there's something I, I don't know as right. a medical professional. Maybe I need to look into this. I would probably right. say like exact words. I would probably say something. You know, and I'm really concerned with uh, the injected aluminum at this point because of new research that's coming out that's mm-hmm. really showing this neurotoxicity. I'm concerned as it's injected into the body and the number of doses that we have, especially to those that are genetically susceptible, what kinds of things can happen. I don't think it's been studied enough for me to feel mm-hmm. comfortable with it. You know, kind of just make yeah. it like yeah. somewhat somewhat casual. This is a concern of mine. It shows that you're well-read on the topic, but you're all, you're not going into like a... 20 minute spiel right, on it right. because there's so much to cover in this. Right. This is what's so hard. Right. And I think, I mean, if medical professionals that are listening to this, if somebody sent you this episode to listen to this, I hope that some of the things that we're mentioning, that you understand exactly why we've come to our beliefs on this and mm-hmm. why we have concerns. These are valid scientific, scientific and medical concerns. This is not even just on the religious belief system or ethical line, we're talking about actual scientific concerns. So for those who have been trained scientifically, trained medically, there is validity to everything, you know, every single thing that we're saying. And that means the person who sent this episode to you is somebody who cares about this. They're concerned about this. They've also done this kind of research and they're also concerned and maybe want you to know why they're concerned in a way that they don't know how to articulate exactly. And they want yeah, to sort of, yeah. you know, they want you to, to check out this episode because they want you to understand where we're coming from and what kinds of things we're looking at. One of the last, and maybe we can post some of the studies that would be maybe the most important studies, maybe like the 10 top studies that you would, or five or whatever. Yeah. We can add that to our episode description. Uh, I'm going to have to do work. One of the mean? ones I'd say out of that, that is really important that I get asked about a lot is the Cochrane report as it relates to the flu vaccine and okay. not preventing this, the transmission of influenza. Right. Right. So yeah. again, if you're a medical professional and you believe everybody needs to get the flu vaccine to keep everybody safe, to keep it from spreading. When you look at the Cochrane report and that data, and it actually shows there was no decrease in the transmission of, of influenza, even with the flu vaccine. 
that's something to pay attention to is mm-hmm. that even if you do mandate it for everyone, even if everybody gets it, it's not going to stop the transmission. This is important. Right. This is this is why we uh, stand up against a mandate for something like the flu vaccine. It's not that we want everybody to be sick and we don't want to quote do the right thing, but right. it's not going to help. Right. And here is information, data to show you why it's not going to help. It might not be the information you were given because you were given the information that says it's, it's effective at this and that. Mm-hmm. And if we increased the uptake of adults with um, getting the annual flu vaccine, then all of a sudden we'd have a lot less influenza and blah, blah, blah. But our data is really showing us otherwise, including the data that we saw from the California Department of Public Health that shows that those hospitalized and even that die from the flu, um, that we had about 50% of those were already vaccinated. So it's not even keeping people from having a more serious case and making a milder case for them, which is another thing that we hear a lot. So if you are a medical professional, you've been guided to this episode and you're open-minded, search through our other episodes. Search through some titles that might seem interesting Mm -hmm. to you. Check out our stuff on the flu debate where we go into this stuff and we bring the data to the table. Go into some of the studies that we show and, and listen through with us. Again, not trying to change your belief system, but hopefully you'll understand why we've come to this belief system and why we are speaking out on something like this and how the information you've been given is not the whole story. We will have other information to show you that's valid, peer-reviewed medical literature, CDC data, state data, and that's what we base all of our information on in this podcast. And this is not about personal opinions. This is really about, you know, what's behind all of that and and. I, you know, I believe all of this is extremely valid Mm -hmm. and hopefully this can open your minds just a little bit to understand that there is an intelligent group of people behind the movement for informed consent and medical freedom. And that's who we are. And, and this was shared for you for that reason. So hopefully you were able to get something out of it. Please continue to listen to our other episodes. And, um, are you, anything else you wanted to add? No, no, I think, I think we've covered it. So we'll wrap up this episode. Um, I don't know what's coming next. I mean, gosh, we have a long list, but we'll have a lot coming in the next couple weeks as we postpone our national tour. We will be filling it with lots of podcasting. So we'll have plenty of material until we're out there seeing you guys starting in uh, June, officially in Southern California, it'll be May, it'll be our first one, but Mm -hmm. outside of this location. We will be in our first out-of-state event uh, starting in June. We'll have June, July, August, September, October, and the early part of November. So we are very excited, looking forward to meeting everyone, and we will keep the podcast coming in the meanwhile. Since you're going to be at home quarantined anyway, you might as well have something interesting to listen to. <laughs> oh my gosh, can you imagine if they like quarantined us here in the studio? <laughs> I, would, I would just sneak. No, what if they quarantined at home? We couldn't podcast. I would just sneak out saying yeah. I'm... I'm running to the grocery store and then quickly come in here. Let's do three episodes and then get back with stocks of toilet paper and then nobody will question me. (laughs) Anyway, thank you guys for joining us on the Vaccine Conversation with Melissa and (laughs) Dr. Bob. (laughs) You always have to get the last word. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.
The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as medical advice. Always consult your healthcare professional for information on vaccines and infectious diseases.